Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talkback Gardening. Good morning, John. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, Gardeners. With an extra special good morning to those that took part in our uh, photographic competition to discover the most powerful pollinators in our garden and you'll be announcing the winners shortly we will indeed and i have to say congratulations to all of the incredible entries once again the quality was so high and and it was just wonderful getting pictures of people's gardens and they are not only good gardeners they are great photographers as well and there was one particular pollinator that did appear more than others and I'll let you know about that a little later on but we did have everything from hoverflies spiders uh, native bees um honeybees Butterflies, you name it. So, lo- and of course, the flowers themselves. Absolutely, a fascinating range out there, and we're going to find out which are the most powerful pollinators in the garden, and how we can take advantage of that knowledge and maybe uh, increase what's going on in our gardens from a pollination point of view. We had hoped that uh, Katja Hogendorf would be our guest this morning in the studio. Katja, unfortunately, very sadly, has to. Oh, she's back on her way back to in Holland. The Netherlands. The, the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Uh, most important, anyway. Uh, but uh, we have in uh, Catcher's place Elizabeth Williamson. Will, uh, uh, Elizabeth has been working with Catcher for the last six to eight years, and she is uh, uh, a budding research entomologist working in a number of areas, but looking at the role of bees and what goes on, particularly inside the bee. But uh, uh, she has uh, very kindly uh, volunteered to come into the studio, and we're going to talk about the pollinators very, very shortly, yeah, which are the most powerful. How can we identify them and make better use of them? Absolutely. And fascinating research as a microbiologist on the biomes inside the guts of bees, which is very interesting indeed. Now, I have a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away a little bit later in the program and as John said we will be announcing the powerful pollinators photographic competition winners as well so please do stay tuned for that and we'd also love your calls particularly if they're about pollinators Uh, if you've got a bee question we have Elizabeth with us in the studio so the number is 1300 222 891 and that's the number to get through to John for your general talkback calls uh, after that as well 1300 222 891 we love your comments on the text line which is 0467 922 891 it's national pollinator week and so we're talking pollination of plants in the garden which are the most powerful critters out there that carry out that pollination and uh, Elizabeth Williamson is uh, a PhD student working with Katja Hogendorn and doing a lot of research on bees themselves. Let me say good morning there Elizabeth and welcome to Talkback Gardening. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very keen to be on the airs talking about bees with you guys this morning. Wonderful. Okay. Honeybees of course are recognised probably as the most uh, uh, powerful out there or well, people think you know, they're, they're the, the they're the bee's knees uh, in, in terms of pollination. But there's a, a big range of critters out there. Could you just give it an idea of who's out there that's doing some good work? So honeybees is definitely the most abundant pollinator in gardens and in agriculture. But yeah, in Australia, we're so spoilt for the, for the number and diversity of pollinators we have. We have 
are 2,000 species of native bees in Australia. That's endemic, so they're only found here. And we also have so many flies, butterflies, moths, uh, wasps. Interestingly, I just found out recently that for every species of bee, there are 50 species of wasps. So that's tremendous diversity. And we've also got interesting mammal pollinators here in Australia, uh, bats, and I found out recently possums also do pollination. So if you've got an annoying possum in the roof, maybe mm. making a ruckus, they're also probably pollinating your plants in your backyard. So the insects that are out there, is, is, it, is it just by chance that they pollinate or is that their role? So they have co-evolved with uh, companion plants for millions of years. And so flowers are their, their food source. We're talking pollen, nectar, maybe the bacteria in the flower as well. And so the, the, it's a mutualistic relationship where the pollinators will get their food and then the plants will be able to replicate through pollination. So okay. their pollinators will leave with pollen grains, visit another flower, and that's where we get seed onset. So let's take flies. You often sort of see there are lots of flies just fly, flying around a, a, a nice bush, and you think, oh, they're attracted by the, the fragrance, maybe. Uh, do they actually, or how, how do they actually carry out the pollination? So it's, it's a bit of a passive pollination system with flies where they'll land on a flower, collect uh, pollen, and then some of it will happen to get stuck onto the fly. And a lot of pollinators have um, hairs. Mm -hmm. So they have a morphological ability to, to get pollen stuck to them. And then there's a passive transfer of pollen to the next flower. So it's more than serendipity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, so they're out there in, in the large quantities. Um, how effective are our native bees compared with, say, the honeybees in terms of pollination? So this is a really interesting field of research where we're kind of at the beginning of uncovering how important native bees are for pollination systems, such as in agriculture. And we already have a few examples of our native bees being much more effective at pollination than honeybees. Honeybees have the benefit of abundance, like there's so many of them. We can have them in colonies. We can put them where we need pollination services. But sometimes honeybees are a little bit tricky in pollination. So the example I'll use here is is lucerne. So lucerne flowers have a really interesting pollination system. Do they ever? They do. They, the bees they get have, donged on the head. Exactly, exactly. There's basically an anther trap inside the the flower where the bee will be hit on the head with the <laughs> pollen to make sure it's going to be transferring the pollen to the next flower. Hey buddy, this is your job. Bong on Bonk the head. Right on the yeah. head. And the honeybees don't like that. I don't blame them. And so they've actually developed ways of getting inside the flower to collect the pollen and nectar without setting off the pollination trap. The honeybees or the native bees? The honeybees. Okay. But native bees, they don't have this uh, tricky <laughs> mechanism. So they're much more efficient pollinators because they do let themselves be bonked on the head. <laughs> okay, fascinating. And uh, so there are the native bees and they can pollinate and probably uh, it, it comes down to population dynamics. If you've got so many more honeybees probably we're saying they're more, more effective but maybe if we had the same number of native bees uh, they would be as effective or is that the pie yeah, in the sky? Yeah, well said. There's 
a lot less um, native bees that visit, say, agricultural crops. Um, a lot of Australian native bees are what we'd call specialist bees. And so that's when we're talking about their diet breadth. So bees, they can either have really generalist diets. They'll visit a lot of different kinds of plants. And that's really good for an agricultural pollinator. But a lot of Australian bees are specialists. They'll only really visit a number, a few number of uh, native plants. And so they won't be seen in agriculture very often. Um, but there's the few species of native bees that do visit uh, agricultural crops are really important to promote and to take care of. And, and for me, it's about having um, a second line of defense in our pollination security. So honeybees, they are by far our best agricultural pollinator, but they have a lot of problems um, where if we get, say, a virus like, or like a disease, <laughs> like varroa mite, I'm sure we'll up, talk about that later. Yeah. 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 Um, if that, you know, threatens our pollination security, it's really important to have a diverse community of pollinators other than honeybees that can kind of take over and step up in the case that we lose our honeybees. There are lots of gardeners out there and they're growing their summer veg. There are uh, probably cucumbers and zucchinis and pollination can be a real problem there. If they don't get pollination, they, they don't, uh, don't perform. So do you have any trial data to say that, uh, uh, that pollination, particularly through native bees, will actually increase the yield of your vegetables or make, end up with better vegetables or bigger flowers or longer lasting flowers? Yeah, so if we go back to the lucerne example, we've found that native bees are 30% more efficient. 30%. So you get 30% wow. more seed onset and in your veggie patch, that means 30% more tomatoes, for example. Well, where's they taking tomatoes? I mean, tomatoes <laughs> are self-pollinating, or they can be. But um, I know that commercially they use, they're starting to use native bees to increase pollination. Is there, does that happen in home gardens? If you had lots of native bees, would you get better pollination of your tomatoes? I would say yes. And that's not just native bees. Any pollinators in your veggie patch, you're bound to get much, much better pollination. We're talking with uh, Elizabeth Williamson, who's uh, a PhD student working with Katja Hogendorn. And, uh, and she's an entomologist and a microbiologist and a very great science communicator. So it's so lovely to have you in the uh, studio at the moment. We've got some questions coming through, so I might grab you for the moment if you don't mind. Mal is in O'Halloran Hill. Good morning, Mal. Good morning, everybody, and thank you. Uh, two quick questions. Oh, tomorrow I'm... I've got last year's tomatoes in and they've got about 30 tomatoes in a pot and uh, they're doing well. But my main question is, um, I'm gonna, I've am gonna i got brown on my roses and I was going to spray a milk mixture on it today. Is that going to affect the bees or is it too hot? Chemicals is a really interesting question when it comes to pollinators. Um, obviously, we say avoid where possible, but there are environmentally conscious ways of applying chemicals that can really reduce the impact to pollinators. Um, so that is uh, spraying when it's not too windy, so it doesn't spread around to other plants where you might have the, the bees visiting. And then the other uh, great tip that I've heard is really effective is making sure you apply um, at a time of the day where the sun's not 
at peak, ah, peak sunshine. That's right. Everybody yeah. gets up in the morning, including the bees, so uh, that's where you shouldn't spray, whereas presumably the bees go to bed in, late in the afternoon. So when the sun sets and right before the sun rises, those are the best times to apply. So uh, in the evening, after, after the bees... So, so sunset, sunrise, between the two is the best time to spray. Yeah, when the sun's not out. Yeah, there's some fascinating research on, on, on when bees are the most effective, but I, I won't go down that one. Okay. Mal, what, the, you said you had another question? No, it's a milk mixture that I use because I have organic gardens. I wouldn't uh, say yeah. milk would affect pollinators at all. Yeah. I'll do that tonight. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, do it tonight rather than this morning <laughs> is the answer. That's a beautiful tip. Thanks, Mal. Now, on the text line, do native bees sting like honeybees? <laughs> I get this question all the time. Um, I have been stung by a few native bees, and it feels really different to a honeybee. So honeybees have uh, a venom, and so it really hurts. You can get allergic reactions to it. They can be itchy, but a native bee sting, it feels a bit more like a zap. The way that I liken it to is when you're jumping on a trampoline and all of a sudden you get like a little electrical zap, that's what it feels like. So it doesn't hurt very much. And, um, yeah, you don't have to be worried about getting stung by native bees. Mm. Okay. Arthur says, I had three blue-banded bees in the garden last Thursday and one blue-band bee this morning all around the salvia, purple salvia, not near the tomato plant. And I have to say in our (laughs) powerful pollinators photographic competition, Blue-banded bees and purple flowers featured very, very strongly. <laughs> yes. All right. I, the the blue-banded bee is Australia's iconic native bee. And we were talking about tomatoes before, and you won't get honeybees pollinating your tomatoes. Tomatoes are a buzz-pollinated crop, which means you need buzz-pollinating insects such as blue-banded bees. So honeybees can't do buzz-pollination. And essentially what buzz-pollination is, is a bee will go up to a flower and they have to vibrate at a certain frequency to release the pollen. And that makes the pollen drop out uh, and uh, onto sort of the stigma and uh, it starts. Exactly. And so blue-banded bees, they are the ones who are pollinating most of our tomato crops in our urban areas. Wow, there you go. And just before we leave the phones, Anna has called from Melbourne. Hello, Anna. Lovely to have a Victorian listener on deck. What did you want to ask Hi. our special guest who is uh, Elizabeth Williamson? Um, I was wondering, how do you tell the difference between a native bee and a fly? Oh. Great question. All right. So what we have is uh, native bees have three body segments. So they've got a head, a thorax and an abdomen. And they also have two pairs of wings, a forewing and the back wing. And then we've got the the flies that only have two body segments, so head and then the rounded body. At, oh, at the how end. about that? Yeah, and so that's I think the best way to to kind of get your eye in and and try and figure out the difference between flies and bees because they can look really similar. They can. And when it comes down to it, it's practice. It's practice. It's getting out there and it's looking at them. Anna, closely. you'll need to get your good glasses out and <laughs> yeah, count count those. Yeah. Body yeah, I parts. think they keep on killing the native bees by accident. Yeah, yeah we oh, don't want to do that. what I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the call, Anna. Lovely to hear from you. Our number is one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Our text line is zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. Our special guest in the studio is Elizabeth Williamson, uh, entomologist and microbiologist, and we are talking about bees as powerful pollinators, and we'll have more for you in just a moment. 
Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And this morning we are talking powerful pollinators ahead of announcing the winners in our powerful pollinator photographic competition. Our special guest in the studio, Elizabeth Williamson, who is a PhD student working with Dr. Katja Hugendorn and is an entomologist and microbiologist looking at the biomes inside our bees. But we're talking the exterior and the pollinating properties this morning. Honeybees are certainly powerful pollinators and uh, we're starting to realise that our native bees, if we give them a chance and allow them to build up their population, they could also be very, very effective. Just a couple of questions on uh, our native bees. Do they actually live in hives? Do some of them live in hives? Very few of them live in hives. So I said before, we've got 2,000 native species in Australia. 95% of them are solitary. So what they'll do is they'll make a nest a bit like a bird. They'll find a pre-existing cavity or they'll dig a hole in the ground. And that's where they will uh, lay their eggs and create um, what we call pollen provisions, which is mixtures of, of pollen and nectar. And they'll store them in the nest, uh, lay their egg on it, and then their egg will hatch as a larvae. It'll eat the, the pollen provision left by the mother. And then that will emerge as a as an adult bee. But very few interactions outside of mating in the solitary bee species. And that's 95% of our species. We do have one uh, native species in Queensland, Tetragonula carbonaria. They're called the sugar bag bees. They are a very social species and they do produce a very interesting honey. I've been telling people if you're thinking of something uh, to get someone for Christmas, buy some native honey on hi- online for sugar bag um, sugar bag bees because it's a very interesting honey. I was going to ask that was my next question is do native bees make honey because I was listening to a program and, and he, was, he had said he's got his hive at home and I, I wasn't aware that they had hives so uh, there must be a particular type of a bee that does have hives and will make honey. So that would that would be Tetragonula carbonaria and their their honey it tastes like citrusy and eucalyptusy. Oh yum. Yeah, very different to the European honey that's really sweet and you know you can have the red gum uh, flavor profiles inside of honey and different different kinds of flavor profiles but it's nothing like the the native sugar bag bees. Is it available here? Are you aware of anybody that's got a, a hive of native bees and making honey? Um, in Queensland, there not, are there what, is a booming. Oh, okay. Booming what about industry. South Australia? Would they survive in South Australia? Or no, because they're not native, so we uh, don't want to introduce them into uh, South Australia. Uh, because um, <laughs> I guess something we haven't touched on is that we are facing huge declines in abundance and diversity of our pollinators, and this is primarily habitat loss. They, they can't find uh, most their food source, so flowers. And so we, we're really um, being quite vigilant about introducing species where we already have a food deficit and increasing the competition for what's already a, a limited resource. Okay, well, that makes sense. Coming back to those native bees, we want more native bees becoming more powerful. Uh, in the mornings, I walk along a creek and there's an old dead gum tree and all the barks come off and there's probably probably 50 or 60 holes uh, where they've been uh, made by probably uh, uh, beetles or caterpillars previously, presumably that would be an ideal home 
for native bees. Yes, absolutely. So the the bee hotel's gone wild around Australia, which is awesome, like a really great educational tool to to show that bees find pre-existing cavities and that's where they make their nests. Um, And yeah, actually seeing, uh, you'll have to give me the location for that because seeing a a wild bee congregation is increasingly rare. So I'm excited about that. I haven't seen any bees. I walk past it. There's never any, and I've, I've been looking to see whether there's any mud in there. One or two of them have got little pieces of plugs of mud in there, so I suspect they're starting to colonise it. Yep, yeah. already been. <laughs> yeah, sure. So from a home gardening point of view, uh, you can buy your little bee um, ho- hotels. How effective are they? Um, they're more of an educational tool. Yes. That's the way we yes. phrase it. Um, if you want more bees in the garden, a bee hotel is not going to do it flowers will you you need the flowers in Ah, in the garden for it um and actually interestingly enough we're finding specifically here in south australia most of our garden species are ground nesting so they're the ones that dig holes in the ground um to make their nest and so one of uh, the great ways you can promote bees in your garden is actually leaving a little bit, a little area in your garden where you don't mulch so that they have some bare ground to dig into. I know it's quite controversial for yes, gardeners right. <laughs> going into summer. <laughs> Mulching is so important. But okay, so you've got your garden and you've got your ornamental garden uh, in one section and your veggie in another and the whole area is all mulched. Uh, where would you have the, the gap for the bees? close to your veggies or close to the ornamentals or doesn't it really matter or do you need to make sure it's a sunny spot or a shady spot? Um, It doesn't really matter as long as it's a sunny spot. They like to be in peak sunshine. Okay, so, and, and once you've, th- that's their spot, you make sure you don't mulch it and you look after them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and keep your eye out just to see if there are any nests nearby, um, and then you'll know where not to mulch because there's already a nest there. Wonderful. Getting quite a few questions on the text line. I'll throw as many of them as I can to you. <laughs> Let's Elizabeth go. will do it like <laughs> speed dating type. Um, from Pasadena, good news, my finger lime is covered in baby limes for the first time. My question is, what is pollinating my finger lime? Finger limes, yeah, they're, they're a native species, so you can assume they're a native pollinators. Uh, probably honeybees would also play a role in, in citrus pollination. We find that they're the main ones. Um, but yeah, it just you have to get out there. You have to look at the flowers to really to really know what's pollinating. Um, it can depend even if you have the same species or the same plant um, in different uh, locations across Adelaide. It can depend on that location. Okay, and do native bees mix with honeybees? Um, there's very limited research where we're unsure of the effect of honeybees on native bee pollination. Um, yeah, we're just not sure. Now, Sandy from Blackwood might be doing her Year 11 Daughters Research Project for her, <laughs> which is on native pollinators, and asks, what plants are the best starting points to establish a garden to attract native pollinators? Uh, native it, I, you've probably heard it already. Native flowers, they are the best for promoting bee diversity. And um, it's not just native, but also uh, making sure you've got flowers in your garden year round. So most of the time when we think of bees, we think of spring and summer, but we do also have autumn species and some winter species when it's not too cold. And if you can have flowers all year round, you're supporting pollen 
pollinators mm. all year round. And there is a really great resource online if you Google South Australian native bee flowering calendar. It'll come up with uh, a list of species that Kachahogan has collected of uh, flowering species that can promote uh, native bees specifically for Adelaide. Sandy, get your daughter onto that website. Sounds like there's everything you need to have uh, flowers year round. Uh, I I saw, I killed the sawfly larvae cherry slug on my pear and quince trees. Am I killing potential pollinators? Uh, Potentially. Potentially. Uh, Identifying larvae is really hard. (laughs) Really, really hard. You need to be an expert in in. Uh, Love identification. Yes, yeah, but okay. I wouldn't put sawflies down as, as a major pollinator in the garden. <laughs> no, and no. There's more downside of a, of a sawfly, particularly the larvae. They can sort of really skeletonize the leaves of cherries and, and certain plants, and uh, they're not the kind of thing that. Well, I wouldn't encourage too many of them anyway. Yeah, and the the larvae, unless you see it in a bee nest, it's probably not a bee. So I would say go ahead and. Squish those ones. Okay, Deb's phone from Turak Gardens. Hi, Deb. Hi, Deb. I'm standing under our big. Um, it's apparently a a, new, a gum from New South Wales, like an iron iron bark or something gum. And every sort of September October, it comes out in masses of blossom. And then my veggie garden's underneath, and I just notice um, there's a whole lot of. And it happens every year. And I would say they're dead bees, but I'm just wondering if they're maybe drunk on the blossom or something. Um, we're an organic gardener, so we don't we don't spray or anything. But, yeah, it happens around the same time every year. Um, are the bees still crawling around on the ground? Yes. They look pretty feeble, though. <laughs> yep. I think they are drunk bees that you're dealing with. Oh, that's uh, good. We yeah. have lots of examples of fermenting nectar, um, and it is really funny uh, because the bees do get drunk and it takes a little while for them to sober up and then fly away. It's wow. like, a, like a mob of parrots eating, getting stuck <laughs> yeah. into the nectar. And, you know, the, by the afternoon, there's cacophony going on there. But Des, that's you've educated because, us on that. Thank yeah. you very much for your call. <laughs> yeah, on that particular point, because I often get emails, people sort of saying, look, um, there's dead bees all around my garden, and I suspect the bloke next or the person next door has been using insecticides. And I think, well, is it likely if somebody next door is using a, a, a toxic insecticide and spraying their fruit trees at a time when the bees are coming in, uh, would that knock them off and they, you get a, a mass death? Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunately a situation we see often where people will be tending to their garden then all of a sudden they see a bunch of invertebrates on the ground struggling and it is because their their neighbour has sprayed. And that's why it's so important to, to spread the message that you can apply chemicals in a more environmentally conscious way. And the chemicals that are coming onto the market now are different. <laughs> They're no longer the sledgehammers that used to be. They were insecticides that kill. The new type of chemicals that are coming on from a home gardening point of view don't kill. They stop the insects. They immobilise the insects, stop them, and they basically starve or they different mechanisms. But uh, just to be aware that uh, there are much safer chemicals out there that are now available and can be used safely in the garden. Would that be a fair comment? Yeah, I agree. I think the chemicals are getting better for sure. 
Um, and I love all of the home gardeners who are figuring out alternative ways of applying things to their plants, like the guy who called up earlier uh, with the milk on the roses. Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Lulu has sent through a picture of a beautiful bee hotel that she bought in New South Wales. It's now hanging under the tree. Thanks, Lulu. Uh, and this texter says, bees love my poppies. They were rolling in it, buzzing away, three bees in each flower. They're having the best time. <laughs> I'm on rural property, organic garden. I get hundreds of bees in my riverbred gums and it literally smells like honey underneath the tree how can i tell the difference between the european honeybees and the native honeybees uh that is an a good question and an easy question there are no native honeybees in australia so if you see a honeybee it's a european it's one. european oh, the old teddy bear beetle bees been brought in yeah. Yep. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. I've only got time for one more call for Elizabeth. She's supposed to be out of here by now. Trevor in Greenwich. Good morning. Uh, yes. Good morning, and um, thank you very much, Elizabeth. Your information this morning has been very informative. Uh, look, um, native bees. Do they use a grass tree? You know, the flower stems like the xanthorias. Do they drill a hole in there and use that for their home and food and so on? Yes, we have a few examples of native bees doing that. Um, the one that's coming to mind is the xylocopa bee. Uh, and there are also other examples of bees being really picky with grass stems. Uh, there is a bee out on KI uh, that requires the grass stem to burn. And then it requires it to to mould with a specific fungi for 15 years. And so then you have a bee after about 15 to 20 years who finally finds the grass stem appropriate for bee nesting. Um, So, yeah, there's really interesting co-evolution between between bees and the native grasses. Great question, Trevor. Thank you. Just a few quick ones for you, Elizabeth. Do ants pollinate plants? Ask Patricia in North Haven. They do. Uh, do native bees die after they sting you like honeybees, asked Deb in Warradale? They don't. Uh, Tim in Prospect says, I would have thought that the Queensland native bee, the carbonara, its honey would taste like bacon and eggs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Mary from the Brossa would like to know the name of that bee again, the Queensland honeybee. Tetragonula carbonaria, and you can Google uh, to buy their, their native honey by doing sugar bag bees. Great. And the last question goes to Roger. Do bees have knees? (laughs) (laughs) They have a kind of knee, yes. (laughs) There you go. So when you said the bees' knees before, John, they do have bees' knees. Excellent. This morning's mission was to discover the powerful pollinators in our garden. And I think we have been uh, fascinated and probably amazed at what's out there, who's out there helping us pollinate the plants in the garden. But Elizabeth, before you go, yesterday in our discussions, you talked about the importance of finding a pollinator and discovering more about it. Yes. Um, it's it's how I've gotten into this field is really just being out in my garden and, and looking at what's there. And the way that I describe pollinators is they're basically like a, a gateway bug into, into natural systems as a whole. So you've got these amazing insects pollinating your flowers, seed onset. So you've got plants, 
but also pollinators are so important for your birds. They're their main food source. And so once you've got the birds, you can also talk about the lizards that also rely on these insects as a food source. And so if you can get down in your garden and see what pollinator has already made your space their home. What bug switched you on? Yes, what oh what bugs switch me on yes. specifically? Native bees. Okay. Native bees, of course. Um but yeah, if you can find out what's in your garden and and then think of ways to support them further, whether it's planting more of what they're already loving or or making sure that that space is, is left for them. I think that's really important in our so gardens. So if there's a little butterfly comes, a little blue butterfly comes and sits on there, you can say, I love you, I'll find out more <laughs> about you. Yes, yes, exactly. Mm. And um, I think there's a really great app uh, for people who are just getting into like bug identifications. Uh, it's called iNaturalist. And if you download the app, you can just take a photo of, say, the blue butterfly on the flower, and then there'll be a bunch of people online trying to identify it. And that's like a really easy way to identify um, what's what you're seeing. Elizabeth, I'm aware that there's so much information coming through uh, as a result of your research, Catcher's research, and uh, it needs to become available. And I'm also aware that people are becoming fascinated, wanting more information. So I think I need to talk and, and work closely with you and Catcher, if I may, and identify some of these areas, and we can sort of publicise the links in the Good Gardening newsletter, and at mm. appropriate times when uh, there's issues arised, I'd love to have either you or Catcher back in the program. Thank you very much for this morning's contribution. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've loved chatting bees with you guys. Thank you, Elizabeth. And on the text line, Elizabeth Williamson is terrific. We should have her on again. I'd love to hear <laughs> about the bee gut. Uh, here, here, we agree with you 100%. Thank you for sending that through. Elizabeth, uh, is an entomologist and microbiologist, a PhD student working with Dr. Katia Hugendorn at the University of Adelaide and is an expert on bees' gut biomes. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you. Great to uh, have a wonderful new guest in the studio, isn't it, John? We are getting back to Talk Back Gardening calls next. If you've got a question for John, call in now on 1300 222 891. I still have two ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away later in the program and we are going to announce the winners of our powerful pollinator photographic competition as well. All of that ahead. Talk Back Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Our phone number is 1300 222 891. Call to ask John a gardening question right now. Butch in Seacliff Park has. Good morning, Butch. Uh, good morning, Deb. Morning, John. I have two very quick questions. One, the perennial one about removing the laterals for tomatoes. Yes or no? Generally, yes. Once you've right. got your plant established, what you need yeah. is your mainframe. You, now, you tell me, how, how big is your tomato at the moment and uh, how many laterals uh, have you got? <laughs> they're about a metre or so tall. Yes. And um, there's a few, few laterals that are uh, quite large. All right, well... Um, I suggest and I favour uh, you have your main stem coming out of the ground, two, maybe three main laterals, and they become like the branches, the framework branches for the future of that plant. Now, as yep. it grows, you'll find that it sends up a new growing tip and then a new set of leaves, and from that the new leaf, between the new leaf and the new growth, there's a, a, a new growth starts. They're the ones that I take out and lots of good gardeners take out because all they're doing is is 
increasing the quantity of leaves, and that's not a bad thing, but what you get, if you get too many leaves, you get too much, uh, um, well, you don't get enough airflow through it. And also you'll find that those little side branches are taking energy that could and should be going into your fruit. So off with their heads or off with their bottoms. This morning. Next one, I've, I've got tomatoes, cucumbers, zucchinis, beans, uh, but none of which have been affected, but I have uh, some capsicums that were look, doing really well in the last two days. They've just been stripped bare of leaves. How about Everything that? else is untouched. Right, uh, did they drop? No, no, they've been eaten off. Oh, they've been eaten? Yeah. How about that? Do you have possums in the area? Uh, yep. Okay. Yeah, I think you might find that uh, as we go through the season, uh, early in the season, new growth has lots of sugars in it, and <laughs> the possums can munch away at the sugary type things, and uh, I'm not too sure whether their diet changes or their need for sugars change. So, but that, so if I put that, a guard around that for the time being, see reckon, if that Yeah, works. exclusion is probably, if it's possums, the only solution, proper solution, is exclusion, yeah, netting or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, right. Go for it, Butch. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much, Butch. Appreciate that. Uh, Let's go to Ranella now. Now, Sharon has got something eating. We've got a few eating questions now, eating her tomatoes. Hello, Sharon. Hello. I've I've just been out and checked my tomatoes, and something's eaten the whole bit out. And on closer inspection, it's it's not an insect. It looks like it's been chewed out. Like there's little saw marks all around. And I'm just wondering, would it be a lizard, a blue tongue lizard? Because we do have one in our yard. Right, it could be. Oh, I mean, <laughs> uh, how 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 tall up is the tomato? Is it the tomatoes or the leaves that are being eaten? No, the tomatoes. The tomatoes, and how high off the ground as the uh, other tomatoes? I've got them in a raised bed, but there's another bed beside it, which is a. No, what's the, the difference between the, what's the difference between ground? I'm looking at a, a, a lizard. A lizard can only reach. It's got long legs or reasonable front legs, and it can reach up maybe at ten centimetres. If uh, the tomatoes are higher than ten centimetres, I wouldn't blame your lizard. Well, it can go from one garden to the other. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's, okay. The gardens are both very yeah, I mean, close And together. if it was a solid plant, I suppose, it could put its legs up there and have a munch. Um, to just describe the, the, the munching. So you've got little small tomatoes, and there's a, uh, the, the, the bottom end has been eaten, and, and the inside yeah. has been hollowed out. The, yes. Okay. And there's a couple of tomatoes that have just had a little nibble out of. I don't know. Um, Unless it's rats. <laughs> that was what I was about to suggest. Uh, people don't like me suggesting they might have rats. But, yeah, you'll find that uh, rats, uh, again, are very, very silent, very sneaky, and they tend to feed, particularly in the lower section of the leaf, and that's what they'll yep. do. They'll come to the end of the fruit, and you'll find sometimes, say, with an orange, they'll start at the bottom end of an orange, and they'll make a hole in it, and they'll eat all the flesh out, and all what you've got is just a bare orange skin hanging on the tree. And I think That's it's right. just... That's we've got them. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay, well, I think your, your problem are rats, and okay. you, you need to sort of think about how you're going to make sure that you can reduce the rat population, and that comes okay. down very much to hygiene and, and all those kind of issues which we won't go yep. through. Yes. 
Okay, then. Thanks for that. Thanks, Sharon. I've got a big rat in my garden, John. You see it wandering up and down the fence here and there as well. Uh, if you've got a talkback gardening call, one three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number. But I think, John, it's time to announce the winners in our powerful pollinators talkback gardening photographic competition. We asked you to take a photo of either the pollinator itself or the plant that provided the pollen. And we had well over 60, possibly 70 entries, and the quality of them was incredibly high, wasn't it, John? Extremely, (laughs) yes. Impeccably high. So hard to choose winners. I would like to be able to send everybody a prize, but we just can't do it. Uh, So uh, I'm going to announce the winners of the ABC Organic Gardener magazine packs. And, And just to let you know the sort of things that we saw, we saw, of course, a lot of beautiful beautiful blooms and a couple of things that that you're not a winner so don't get excited but a couple of really lovely things that we saw Um, Natalie Spackman sent through a photograph of her wall now she lives in a small courtyard home moved in nothing only a 20 meter square area of bare earth and she built an amazing pollination wall didn't she a just wall, stunning having a wall garden and doing it properly so that you can grow the plants and certainly you can grow lots of flowering type things gives you the diversity brings in the pollinators yes which was absolutely beautiful so um, I'm sorry you're not a winner but we were very impressed by um, you know the the idea behind it which is it doesn't matter what size your garden is you can do a lot to make it attractive to pollinators. Um, I, I really, really did enjoy that greatly. And we had, um, I'm just trying to think of the name, John, another beautiful entry through that had a beautiful dog, Millie, in the garden. I'll find that person's name in a moment, but just absolutely gorgeous and showed the interplay between our animals and the pollinators in our gardens. Yes, some people, it's the flowers and uh, they're the important things in terms of pollination, but it's the critters, I think, uh, from my point of view, I'm fascinated with it, but uh, uh, it all depends on a point of view. Yes, and look, it was critters that won the day. So the winners of our ABC Organic Gardener magazine packs were Chris Matters. Uh, she had a beautiful picture of a butterfly and says they may not be the perfect pollinator, but they're the most attractive, both visually and appealing to higher order predators like birds. If butterflies come to your garden, so do the birds and the insects, all contributing to pollination, with a beautiful photograph taken in her garden. Gary Mansell um, had a beautiful uh, pollinator of blue-banded bees, um, a couple of them, and talked about buzz pollination, which we just heard Elizabeth speaking about. Says, after grasping a flower, they shiver their flight muscles, causing the pollen to shoot out of the flower capsule. They collect the pollen and carry it back to the nest from flower to flower. Beautiful photograph from Gary. Yeah, that's a good observation too. Yeah, excellent. Georgina Smith uh, also had a great picture of blue-banded bees, and I'll say that blue-banded bees on purple flowers were definitely the majority of the entries. Uh, And she talks about the buzz pollination as well and its critical role in pollination of many crops including tomatoes, and spoke about this vibration technique as well. Georgina, congratulations. And Colin Hay, another picture of a native blue-banded bee, um, an effective pollinator in the garden and especially likes Colin's lavender bushes. So we will send out or we'll contact you actually about whether we you pick up or we send out those packs to you. The runner-up 
And we've got a runner-up prize thanks to Peter Gers because he said, come into my lair and take what you like. And there was a copy of Sophie's Patch by our wonderful oh. Talkback Gardener and ABC Gardening Australia, great Sophie book. Thompson. Yeah, great, great, uh, good uh, library. So book. along with the magazine pack, the copy of Sophie's Patch is going to Colleen Ross, who took a p- photograph which you were particularly happy with of lovely ladybirds, three in a wa- row, on beautiful yellow fennel flowers. Ah, yes. That, then they were on an umble. The flower that, that actually there was an umble of flowers. Right, which is exactly what you were talking about with Elizabeth mm. as well. So congratulations to you um, taking a photograph of the fennel flowers in your garden. But our overall winner, the winner of a magazine pack and the beautiful book Good Life Growing by Gardening Australia's Hannah Maloney, is Leanne Davis. And Leanne's on the line. Congratulations, Leanne. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, John. Now, you also took a picture of the bee, and this one was on your passion fruit vine. It was a honeybee. I have blue-banded bees in my garden, but I haven't got them to sit still long enough to take a photo yet. Uh, but what amazed me about the photograph was it was such good resolution and so close you can see the little beads of pollen on the feet of the bee. Yeah. So there's lots of pollen in the flowers that day. So yeah, yeah, it was just absolutely beautiful. So congratulations, thank you. Um, Hang on the line. Uh, You're a a avid gardener, Leanne. Um, I wouldn't say avid, but I do love my garden, and I I have plenty of fruit trees and things. So yeah. And you're obviously interested in the critters. Do you like the concept that Elizabeth put forward of finding a bug that maybe is. of interest to you, and then starting to do a bit more research, start to Google, look at the web, find out uh, how it works, where it comes from, and you become a little mini expert in a particular bug in your garden, which is a powerful pollinator. I've probably done that more with birds in my garden than bugs yet. But oh, okay. <laughs> right, well, we need to have a bird competition. We do. <laughs> That's the next one for us. Lots of birders out there. Well, Leanne, congratulations. Stay on Thank the you. line. Um, and I know that you'll be really inspired by the Good Life Growing book by Gardening Australia's Hannah Maloney. It's just absolutely wonderful. So congratulations to you. But once again, I say congratulations to everybody who entered. The standard of your entries was just wonderful. And to see your beautiful gardens was also a great pleasure as well. I've also got a couple of ABC Gardening Australia magazines to give away right now. So if you didn't win the Powerful Pollinator competition and you haven't won anything from ABC Radio in the last month, then you can call in now to win a Gardening Australia magazine on 1300 991. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Congratulations to our powerful pollination competition winners. Lovely um, for you to send those through to us. And stay tuned for ABC Radio Adelaide social media where you can see those pictures. We'll certainly do a post in our newsletter as well. And, John, I've no doubt you'll be printing those beautiful pictures in your Good Gardening newsletter as well. Certainly look forward to that, yes, and that's one of the nice things about the, the competition, not the competition, the, the liaison between talkback gardening and the good gardening. There's so much synergy between what happens in the program and then uh, gets repeated or sort of highlighted in the good gardening information and then comes back to the talkback gardening. That's right, itself. synergy. We're all about it. If you are not a subscriber to John's newsletter, just type in John, J-O-N, 
lamb and good gardening and subscribe and it'll land in your uh, inbox every Friday morning. Just very, very quickly. We keep on getting emails saying, can you please change our address? Internode at the moment is driving us mad and, and we can't. You have to change your address yourself. Go to the newsletter at the end of the newsletter, uh, click on it and you can find the form, fill in your form and re subscribe and you'll be back on the list. Wow, and I'm also getting some amazing photographs through on the text line of beautiful bees. Thank you very much for whoever's sending those in. And congratulations to our magazine winners, Donald in Woodville and Debbie in Murray Bridge. We will send those out to you. Now, we've got a caller all the way from Perth. Gee, we're going really national with the program. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, John and Deb. How are you? We're great, thank you. Now, what flowers aren't opening for you? Um, well, I grow a lot. Of, I've grown impatience in my garden. I have a lot of shade. And this year, after hearing about John raving about the doubles, I bought some doubles. But I'm hoping he can tell me what I'm doing wrong because it's kind of like you know when camellias don't open, they sort of stay in little balls or they partially open and the outer flowers are kind of brown, the oh. outer petals. Okay, we're talking brown. about the new impatience? Yes. Yes, okay. Yes. No, aren't they wonderful? <laughs> They're beautiful. Yeah, I love impatience. Uh, so do I, yeah. And, and they, they've come up with sort of semi-double ones, and, and you can buy those in, in large seedling packs, and you know, they're, they're much better than, I won't say, yeah, they're, yeah, they're better than the normal ones, and then you've got these brilliant double ones, and they have the ability to, uh, they're perennial rather than annual, and they'll last all the year round. But their Achilles heel is if uh, you don't get it absolutely right, they're, they're probably a bit more finicky to get them right. And so what happens is the outer petals tend to sort of go brownish. Uh, are they opening up or are they opening up and going brown or are they just sort of going uh, uh, brown uh, altogether? Both. Like, so some, some are opening, and but they have those brown, ugly petals around the edges. Some look good. Uh, I've got a pink a dark pink and a white and the dark pink one they're just sort of in little balls and they drop off oh disappointing okay it, it's to do with both nutrition and moisture um they are uh, if you they sit in their pot and the important thing is don't overwater them impatience in particular very easy to overwater them and so you think oh the topsoil is is, is dry I'll, I'll water it and if you take the plant out of the pot and look at the bottom half you'll find it's still quite moist mm-hmm. so i think it, it could be overwatering or then you uh, you can also go the other way and, and if it dries out you, you get a stress factor and so it comes the, back to doing what you were saying before and checking your pot regularly and working out how much water you're actually getting into yeah, it. Yeah, the way with pot plants, with those kind of plants, lift the pot up. When you water it, dunk it in so it's fully watered, lift it up and feel how heavy it is. And then uh, every three or four days, just start lift it up and you'll find that it, all of a sudden it's very, very light. That's the time to, again, give it a dunking rather than just a, a light watering. So you water thoroughly the whole lot. And then the other thing is take a look at the nutrition uh, these new plants are very responsive to nutrition so if you give them a little bit of extra fertilizer they put on extra growth so get a balanced fertilizer for f- flowers most important if you get something that's too much nitrogen you'll get lots of growth and that may allow the flower uh, encourage the flowers to abort so get the nutrition right get the watering right and i reckon uh, we'll both enjoy those 
your impatience. <laughs> Thank you, Sharon. And it's James from Hope Valley who's sending through these beautiful photographs. Some of them should have been in the competition, James. <laughs> Send them in next time, please. If you will be very quick, Mary. We might be able to quickly answer your kiwi bush. What's going on with it? Um, well, it's fairly... I only bought it a few weeks ago and I repotted it into a bigger pot and it was growing quite vigorously on the little trellis there and then all of a sudden it seems to have just looks a bit dead. It's half turning up its toes a bit. It's still got some green, but, yeah, some brown patches, and I'm just not sure what's happening. I've never had one before. Okay, so you're talking about a kiwi bush that has little kiwi fruits on it? Kiwi berry, it's called. Yeah, yeah okay, right. Oh, And how big is the pot? Oh, the pot's a big square pot now. I can't remember how um, many. Oh, right. Would it have 10, centimetres? Li- 10 litres of a potting mix? Um, no. I used listen, a little because it says to use it acidic. Yeah, I listen, a, a, I, kiwi bushes yeah. are very large, vigorous plants. Normally, I wouldn't put them in a container uh, because of their vigour and their size, and you need uh, probably a male and a female one. So uh, I don't think the likelihood of them succeeding in a container, unless it's a very big container and you're very, very diligent, you're not going to be successful. Put it in the garden or give it to a friend. Okay, sorry, Mary, we had to deal with that one a bit quickly. Well, John, I know you'll be out in the garden as always. Yes, I'm going to have to repot my Plectranthus collection. I've got a brilliant collection, lots of cuttings. I'm not too sure what I'm going to do with them all, (laughs) but until next week, I'll say good gardening.